from the UK, broadcasting around the world. Around the world. You're listening to the Mike Drop Club, hosted by Douglas Hamandiche. Message received. Message received. You do not need to know what you need. What you need. Just engage with the podcast feed. Just engage with the podcast feed. Providing weekly insights into cool stuff we've read, saw, did, or heard about what made us say, wow, eureka, damn, nothing is off limits. If it motivates and inspires you to reach your goals, then it shall be discussed. Featuring guest interviews from high performers and people of influence and weekly awards for the best mic drop moment. This podcast is guaranteed to leave you pumped up for the week ahead. Don't just live life, make life boom. Hi everybody, my name is Douglas Sam DJ with another show for the Mic Drop Club. Today I'm welcoming Jenny Pink to the show. This is going to be part three of our three-part mini-series, Let's Talk Mental Health, um, where we're exploring mental health trauma um, from a parent's view and we shall be discussing it from the perspective from... Um, an author, somebody by the name of Gert Bettinger, he was involved in the second one, whereby he wrote a book called Moving On By Standing Still, which addresses signaling behaviour. A lot of times young people behave in certain ways, or anybody that's gone through trauma will behave in a particular way that we might deem as challenging. So that 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 um, show, if you want to follow it, go but go to the, the links below and listen to that one before you actually engage with this one as well. It's a three-part mini-series, okay? Um, and also his book, Moving On By Standing Still, is, is highly recommended. It's available on Amazon, so go check it out. So today, I'm blessed once again and extremely grateful to welcome Jenny Pink to, Jenny Pink to the conversation to help seal our triangulation conversation with this very, very important perspective from the clinical side of things as well, okay? Um, and it's through sharing different views of mental health, we are able to raise awareness and hopefully build confidence and supporting anyone that's going through mental health crisis, regardless of the root cause. And there are common things that we need to pay um, pay heed to when we talk about mental health. Mental health is not just a stereotypical somebody that's schizophrenic, okay? Mental health has many different um, categories, okay? From um, childhood abuse, trauma, neglect, social isolation, discrimination, stigma, um, social distance, people coming from economically deprived neighborhoods, anyone that's dealing with a loss, as well as um, long-term stress. These things can trigger some sort of mental health disorder. Okay, so don't just think that if you've got everything going for you in your life, that you're not going to be susceptible to mental um, health problems. Okay, because one in four of us, is likely to develop a mental health illness at some point in time. So without any further ado, I want to welcome Jenny Pink to the show. How are you doing? You all right? Hi. Yes. Thank you. I'm fine. How's your day been? Um, my day has been really good. It's been really busy. I've been uh, working at the hospital today. So uh, yeah, it's busy as always, just before Christmas. Indeed. So, and uh, for those of you who don't know, I, I tracked down Jenny using social media using LinkedIn as professionals, okay, to find somebody that is very positive, that's clinically driven, okay, that goes over and beyond what is um, the norm for their role, okay? So that's where I found Jenny Pink, Pink, and she's got a very interesting journey that she wants to share with you, okay? So first of all, let's talk about your background. How did you say something about yourself and how did you go into mental health? How did I get into mental health? Well, um, I, I'm from Sweden. I've been in this country for 24 years uh, and I've done uh, loads of different things in my life. Um, you know, f- going from being a post woman up to, you know, now being a nurse. Um, and I always knew I wanted to work with children. And my longest stint in one job was in a, in a school where I worked as a special needs teacher. And I worked with the tr- what they call the troubled kids, the kids with the behavioral difficulties, yes. diagnosed, undiagnosed neurodevelopmental disorders, um, uh, chaotic home lives and things like that. So I became the kind of the person that they sent into those situations because I really loved those kids. The, the, the troubleshooters. The troubleshooters, <laughs> the cheeky ones, the, yeah. you know, I, I loved working with that, with those sort of uh, children. 
Um, and then I was thinking, how can I make this into a career? Um, and teaching wasn't necessarily for me because I didn't have a degree and I needed a degree to do a teacher training. So, um, I stumbled across mental health, which I first didn't think was for me, um, at all, because again, like you just said, I had this idea that maybe mental health was just the severe end of, you know, the, the, the diagnosis like schizophrenia or bipolar. Um, and that was a bit scary to be fair. So, um, (laughs) but I did more research and I went for my university interview and I, uh, the first two weeks of my training, I was absolutely hooked. It was amazing. Um, I soaked in every single lecture for the last three, for the next three years. I made some amazing friends. Brilliant. I learned some amazing things. And so, so that's kind of how I got into mental health. And yeah, that was about 13 years ago now. That's brilliant. And today just happens to be the day we're in the UK and the Conservative Party under Boris Johnson had just announced they're reinstating the bursary. Yay! So, yay, yay, yay. <laughs> But they, they're the ones that took it away in the first yes. place. So yeah. how do you feel about that? And do you think the bursary was an enabler for you to get into oh, mental health in the first place? Absolutely. Absolutely. I was I was a low income um, person uh, for most of my life or, or working class, whatever you want to call it. And mm. I've just I just had my uh, my baby um, when I was had I had to think about going back into teaching or do a new career. Uh, so when my uh, boy was eight months old, I then started university. So it was no way yeah. in hell that I yeah. would be able to do that without not just the bursary, but actually the um, the sort of the, we didn't have to pay for our tuition. Obviously that was kind of a part of the deal that we got a bursary. It wasn't a lot of money, but it was enough yes. to contribute something to the family. Uh, but I could not have done it and I would not be here today uh, doing what I'm doing and doing what I love doing if it wasn't for the bursary and um, sort of the, the subsidized, subsidized, the sub, sub, subsidy, subsidy, yeah, <laughs> something like that, yeah. something in terms of the, uh, the tuition fees. So, yeah, so I think it's a great step forward mm-hmm. for Boris Johnson. Um, whatever my personal feelings are about him, I think that that was an amazing decision. I really hope that he's going to stick by it Sure. and to go one step further in terms of the tuition fees. Uh, but it's definitely a good start. Yes. Yeah, most definitely. Now, and one thing about the bursary, it did enable a lot of more mature students to get into yeah, mental health. Definitely. And um, how many in terms of the age groupings? Okay. What was the average age of the students that you were trained with? Oh, mental health. It was definitely older people, you know, Um, the child nurses, they were all 18, 19, straight out of college, Um, adult nurses, a bit of a mix, mental health nurses, uh, the mental health nurse students. I'm I'm sure the middle age, um, sort of the mean age was something like late 20s, 30s, even even older. Um, Yeah. I mean, I was 33 when I started. and I, there were there were people that were older than me. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally agree with you. With you, there when I got into mental health, I was in the late thirties. Mm-hmm. Was I in the late thirties? We? I don't no, know. No, no, early thirties. <laughs> Sorry, early thirties. Yeah, yeah. Because I was looking at for a different career break to yeah. go into, yeah. and um, I wasn't the only one. When I applied, mm-hmm. I thought it was just going to be me, and I thought, oh god, I'm going to be the fossil in the in, out of the mm-hmm. cohort. Mm-hmm. But it turned out that actually. They had two um, um, students that were under 25. They happened right. to be the youngest yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. And only when you go through such a course, you realise there's a lot of wisdom mm. and an experience you can bring to the table yes. while being a mature student, particularly yes. around mental health. Yeah. And um, we lost a lot of that when the bursary was cut. Yes. Because, again, that, that um, knowledge base, that experience mm. base, that particularly young people are looking up to, mm-hmm. particularly when they're going through challenges, yeah. they need that you know, yeah. I think um, bring it back. I, I salute Boris Johnson for bringing it back, but it should never have been taken away exactly. in the first yeah. place. To be, to be quite honest, it came at the wrong time. You know, when we had the the market crash, yeah, people lost their jobs. That is the time whereby we we felt within the mental health um, um, services that we're going to be inundated mm-hmm. with admissions, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. exactly what happened. Exactly, and we didn't have enough nurses. Yeah, so. most definitely. Yeah. So, so as you when you qualified, what were your challenges rise up the ranks and did you find any niche for yourself um i did 
find my um, my niche pretty early on because it was it was always children, always children. I wanted to work with them. Very interested in uh, in sort of early attachment, um, sort of the, the trauma um, and uh, kind of the trauma informed way of, of of sort of applying therapies. I I was always interested in children. Um, I did my sort of generic placements um, that we had to do, and then I was like a dog with a bone really I was hounding the specialist children's services to get a placement and sure. people got quite annoyed with me because I was quite tenacious as a student and I need I wanted to be in the right place sure. at the right time to get the the training I needed so um so yeah I, I went straight into camps after which, uh, which is not easy it's not easy I went in straight into a specialist service and they actually created a, a band five role for me um, as I had been a student there for the sort of for the uh, previous six months. Um, and within six months, I was acting up as a band six um, started to do crisis work on the weekends. Um, and then I stayed in my first role for about six years, I think. Wow. And then um, I did, I went um, briefly away from children because I think you know, maybe I just wanted to try something new. I think you can learn um, nursing, I love nursing in that way that they, they don't really frown upon you changing work or job, uh, it, you know, cause you, you, you just learn so many different things from every different placement, every different job. So I went into criminal justice liaison service, um, in the police custodies and the magistrate courts. And I really loved getting to know the, the system with the, the justice system. And I loved working with the police. We did a lot of training for them in terms of mental health for young people and adults. Um, and I, I really quite like that, but again, I, I felt that it was time to move on. And then I, um, I was in social services for a while, seconded into the youth support service in Surrey when it was called the youth support service. Now I think it's called the child and family service. Okay. Um, and I was doing uh, consultations for the youth workers and being, um, uh, the mental health support for the southeast uh, of Surrey in that time. Um, wow! So, so, so that's that's the journey. It's the that, journey. That's built. only half. <laughs> that's only half. Okay, as we, as we're halfway, I just yeah. want to go back a few steps yeah, in terms of the why. That why did you gravitate to children? You know, when you were training, mm-hmm. you had various placements mm-hmm. and the various attachments to various specialities, right? Yeah. What was what was it about the, the children, the cam service that you really that really gravity you gravitate gravitate into. Right. Well the the first thing is that for me prevention is everything. Okay. That is just the sort of the, the word that I um I mean it's prevention, resilience. I think this is what we need to teach our young people. Sure. Okay. So we need to uh, start early to incorporate all those um kind of important bits but looking after yourself, your mental health and all of that. I also love working with children. They're funny. They're, uh, they're, um, what's the word? Dynamic. They're, uh, um, they inspire me. They, you know, they drive me forward. It's never a, a you know, a boring day. Every, every day is different and it, it feels hopeful. Yeah. It feels, I've got this sense of hope that I can make a difference uh, in, in, in a young person's life uh, or kind of steer them along the, along the, uh, the right path. Um, I know we can do that with, with adult, adults too, obviously. Yes. But for me, my passion was lying in, um, because I think mental health for young people is quite different. It's, it's not static. It's, it's not ingrained necessarily. Mm. It's, it, it's quite transient. And it's quite connected to experiences and where they are in their life and what's going on at that moment. Yes. If you can help a young person through that moment, whatever that moment might be, whether it's a family issue or, you know, friends or school or whatever, the likelihood is that they will, um, they will, they will progress and not have a mental health illness yes. in the future. Yes. It's an emotional need. And if you can help them with that emotional need and the res- resilience and how to deal with that, Likelihood is that it, they're not going to have a mental health issue for the rest of their lives. But if you don't grab it uh, and, and teach young people how to deal with their emotions, I think likelihood is that, you know, it, it might be something that kind of sticks. Sure. And there's a, there's a cost um, implication to this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I salute you and I totally agree because mm-hmm. my passion is young people, mm-hmm. CAMS as well. Yeah. Uh, everything you're saying, I mirror that. Yeah. Uh, I, I had the same experiences and I still do to um, this day. Yeah. They're fresh and dynamic. Mm-hmm. And something about this hope yes. that, that you mentioned yep. there. And 
if that if hope is lost at a young age, yeah. the cost to mental health services when they become young adults, mm. adults, mm. older people's services is huge. It becomes exponential. So yes. there's a cost imperative there from the states mm-hmm. to put more money into children's services because they be, they will be, you're preventing them becoming the patients of the future. Of course. And you yes. want to empower them yeah. so that they can take control of their lives. And I, and I see that sometimes when um, that I feel that we have failed a particular child for, for whatever reason. Um, and I, I, I can see it. I can see, oh no, we missed our window. We yep. missed the window. This young person is now disillusioned with the system, no trust in adults. Uh, he's wearing down the wrong path. We need to try and catch him. And, um, and I've seen that time and time again with the wait lists and with, with, you know, with the lack of early help. Yeah. The provisions, um, the provisions, the provisions. So, have you worked in the same areas or have you seen um, dis- um, disparities across um, the country in terms of mental health provisions? Um, I have only worked in, in this area. Okay. I, I, I've not worked in any other area. Okay. okay. So for the last 13 years, I've been based here in Surrey. Okay. okay? But I've been, um, I've worked all over Surrey and actually within Surrey and Hampshire where I work, there are pockets of, of uh, different What's the word? You know, different different demographic, I suppose. You know, you've got pockets of poverty, you've got pockets of, you know, a lot of wealth, you know. Um, And I see mental health issues across the board. Sure. Absolutely. And and would you say, um, whereby whereby these different pockets Mm. of, like you talked about, um, different economic situations Mm -hmm. taking place, Mm -hmm. do you also find that, Within those pockets, there are different themes coming out in terms of mental health illnesses that are prevalent for young people. Where there's money, mm. do you find a greater prevalence of a typical uh, a, a type of illness compared to a different area whereby there's more, more affluent? Yeah. Mm. How are things manifesting itself? Um, it, I, I definitely see a difference. I, I need to kind of think about how to formulate this or how yes. to kind of, how to explain it. I do see um, a, a, a difference in in the support that the young people get, okay? Yes. So families with money, uh, they can access private private therapy, tri- private help. They sometimes in private schools, uh, smaller classes, they can, um, you know, they have more support, okay? Sure. Um, and that's good, great for people that can afford it. You know, there is there is that choice there for some people, um, and and I do see sometimes with um, with the other side of the spectrum that when that is not a choice, mm. I see then young people really kind of trying their absolute hardest to try and make themselves feel better and feel that they're belonging to something, and I think it's quite. It might be easier to kind of go down the wrong road if that makes self makes sense because um, everyone just wants to belong. Everyone wants to find something, uh, somebody that cares, somebody you know that kind of inspires them. Um, and if 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 the services or the provisions are not there in certain areas, then I think uh, children are much more at risk. Sure, and and Jenny, I just want to say when you candidly talk through your experiences about when you know that you feel that you've let a child down, that mm-hmm. a child is um, slipping through the net. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a very human response. And mm-hmm. there are very few careers that you can go into mm-hmm. whereby you're that, but you, you can engage with people on that level mm-hmm. that you really want to try and help. And when mm-hmm. things go wrong, it really hurts you. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We always, we try and encourage people to, Take on the uh, take on the role of, of nursing because of all the richness, all the good mm. things. But these feelings you get, you know, they, they're hurt. They they do. I mean, it's it's it becomes uh, you know nursing. Any nurse would probably say that it becomes you know massive part of your life. You know, yeah. you wouldn't do it unless you love it. You know, sure. we know we're not getting rich doing it. So you know, we do it because we love it. Um, but it, it it is it is a personal gain to it, you know, and I think we need to recognise that. I've I've had this debate with my colleagues, you know, why do we do nursing? Well, actually, it makes us feel good. It, yeah. it actually rewards us when we see that we have helped somebody or a family that's struggling, or we see that's, you know, of, of course that's going to make us feel good. Um, so on the flip side of that, it's going to make us feel 
sad sure. when we feel like we haven't done enough. Sure. So in terms of um, supervision, did you get a lot of supervision? Do you, do you actively seek to supervise nurses that are newly qualified to give them that, their support when they're going through those yeah. um, emotions as well? Yeah, what we do in my uh, NHS job, um, we are um, mental health nurses within A&E. So we are a specialist team and it's only two of us. We um, we offer supervision to the, you know, anyone who needs supervision in terms of the mental health um, patients and the young people that they see. They get their own supervision in terms of clinical supervision from their manager, but mental health specifically, um, there, there is a lot of um, misunderstanding with, with young people and mental health. There is a lot of mistakes that, that, that nurses maybe feel like they've done and they need to go, oh, well, I wish I'd done it better. So um, they come and talk to us um, when we've had a traumatic experience with a young person that's really um, traumatized or not in a good place, then um, we do supervision groups and, and, and things like that to support those as sure. well. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and the good thing is um, when we are trying to address young um, nurses that feel they've made a mistake. Mm -hmm. For example, I do recall a, a nurse um, and she came to the office and she was um, very upset because she felt that um, she didn't finish doing the care plan in the time allotted. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then we spoke, explored how she was feeling about it. Mm. And I said, is there any problem if you were to go back and ask the, the young person to continue the conversation mm. when you're next on shift or you can mm. hand it over to somebody else? Yeah. That's the one thing about nursing. It's a team environment. Definitely. You know, you don't have to carry the whole weight of the world on your shoulders. No. And we can make mistakes because... Um, even in terms of language, mm -hmm. knowing that you're older mm -hmm. and these young people, they have their own mannerisms, their own culture. <laughs> and yeah. the many times that I misconstrue yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what they're saying because yeah. it has a different meaning. Of course. But it's okay because I think the intention is pure mm -hmm. and I'm open to be corrected. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's something else that I think requires unique people to enter the um, yeah. You know, if, yeah. You're, if you're not really a people's person. Oh, you would struggle, wouldn't you? You would struggle, yeah. If you're like, <laughs> yeah. you know, if you're all process yeah. driven, yeah. I must do this yeah. at this time because yeah. of this policy yeah. says this. Yeah. You would struggle. Oh, it's been my struggle <laughs> all the way through nursing to, um, um, I mean, I, I, I love face-to-face -face conversations and, and I like uh, the therapeutic input, the relationship, the relationship that we build with young people and families. Yeah. And even in liaison services where that um, therapeutic relationship is quite brief, yes. uh, it's in crisis. But you can turn it around really quickly with the right tools. You know, we, sure. can, we see young people coming in in crisis and three hours later they leave with uh, hope. And, and, and in their hearts and yes. the parents feel listened to, they feel listened to. So I think we need to remember that a therapeutic relationship can be quite quick and brief yes. if we do it right. Sure. Um, but yeah, obviously I'm doing my private work because I like that ongoing relationship with young people and, uh, you know, but even with the liaison work, you can really make sure. a change. And just to, just to frame it for anyone that's not into health, mm -hmm. um, what Jenny's is, is um, referring to in terms of liaison work is, I'm assuming in a hospital environment, yeah, yeah. um, any yeah, difficult. Yeah, and a liaison would be um, so it, yeah. So you've got the adult psych liaison team. You've got the the, the pediatric psych liaison team. Obviously, I worked in a criminal justice liaison where I worked in the custodies. Yeah. So it's basically being a specialist nurse in an environment where you um, do the bits that the other people. Can't do. <laughs> sure, sure, because you're you're a mental specialist yes. working in an yeah. adult or acute hospital. Acute hospital. So anyone that comes into A and E with an emotional in an emotional crisis, any sort of uh, risk at harm to themselves or others, um, we then go in as a team and we offer support, assessment, signposting, uh, follow up appointments. Uh, we find that our assessments are very long because actually it's the assessment as a therapeutic tool, not just an assessment as in a risk assessment. Mm -hmm. Yes, you can go home. The assessment itself can be a very useful therapeutic tool. So uh, we make sure that that is, um, that's kind of at the heart of our um, work. Sure. Sure. And when, when I, many moons ago was doing that, um, my, my de facto tool was the care plan. 
I love a care plan because um, there's, a, there's a problem with nursing in general across all ages, really, in terms of the care plan has a bad reputation. Mm. You know, mm. uh, young people might see and say, well, what is the use in yeah. that? Yeah. But then it's like when you collaborate with them and mm-hmm. they're writing themselves in their own language yeah. and the interventions support them with those interventions, mm-hmm. you know, there's an ownership there. Mm-hmm. You know, as long as the health service um, is equipped to enforce their wishes, mm-hmm. then it makes sense. And I think mm-hmm. going back to what you're saying before, it's when a young person feels that we've let them down, mm-hmm. sometimes correcting that is very, very difficult. Definitely. I I think um, I found that a lot in my work, especially in A&E, but also when I worked in my first job, which was for um, a specialist team for complex young people that was at risk of uh, inpatient admission. Um, They've they've gone through stages of CAMS input, you know, preventative services, tier two services, come up to tier three services. and then they come up to kind of the complex team, which uh, by then they have lost all faith in professionals. You know, nobody's helped me all these years. And it's the same with liaison. Sometimes people come in in a crisis. Why are they in a crisis? Sometimes it's because they they haven't had that preventative supportive service that could have prevented the crisis, so to speak. That's so correct. we end up waiting almost to put all our money into uh, sort of the higher tier services where people have already lost hope, lost faith, um, and they might be quite ill. Um, and then, then we're not just treating the illness, we're treating uh, the faith in uh, the system, we're treating the faith in people. We, we, we're having to reestablish all of that at the same time as treating the depression or the anxiety or whatever it is that's going on for that young person. So it, it, it's, 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 it gets harder and harder, yes, obviously. It sounds yeah. very complicated. Mm-hmm. I started off the, this, this series with... Um, a colleague of mine by the name of Tracy Page, and she was uh, recalling her, her daughter being brought in to A&E and ultimately being sectioned yeah. and how lost she felt. Mm. Um, can, you touch, can you just talk a little bit about how you support the, the families through that process, mm. Um, mm. as well as a young person? You know, yeah. the young person might be there already. Yeah. Maybe they're brought there by ambulance mm-hmm. and, the, and the parent is then following. Mm-hmm. You know, you're dealing with two different dynamics there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we have some really difficult times sometimes when, uh, I mean, when somebody's in a crisis, it's not just a young person that's in crisis, the family's in crisis, everybody's in crisis. You have anger, you have fear, you have uh, sadness, you have confusion, you have all those feelings that comes out in myriad of different <laughs> ways and emotions. So you have the young person coming in and then you have the parents coming in, sometimes angry, sometimes frustrated, sometimes not understanding. So um, we we work with an amazing A&E team uh, at Frimley Park Hospital and uh, we do training sessions for the nurses and the doctors there in terms of mental health. And everyone's kind of great now at kind of all helping out. It's not just us doing the job. We're all kind of helping out. Sometimes we have to take the parent to a separate room and, and, and really explain what's going on from the child's point of view. Sometimes there is um, a conf- conflict in the family, conflict uh, between parents, um, and we need to really uh, kind of sit down, um, eventually bring the parent and the child together and, and, and salvage that relationship as much as we can in, in a crisis assessment. But you'd be surprised how much we can do with kind of just a bit of mediation and a bit of everybody being listened to. So, yeah, so we have, we have some really tricky situations, but we find that uh, together with the nurses and the doctors, we can, um, we can make sure that the family has their thoughts and feelings heard. I think that's very important because uh, the parents are the ones that are going to take this child home again. And if they don't actually understand what's going on, if they don't um, know how to respond to this young person. So we did a lot, we do a lot of psychoeducation with parents a lot of answering their questions, a lot of uh, containing their anxieties more than anything sure. because they feel out of their depth. They don't know what they're doing. They want to support their child, but they, they feel they, they feel at a loss. Yeah, a loss is, loss is the right word. And sometimes they feel guilty as well. Of course, you know, yeah. there's, there's so many emotions taking mm-hmm. place, but 
again, I want to touch upon you. You mentioned listening, mm-hmm. which is again another common theme that I've had throughout the whole mini series. Mm-hmm. Is people when they don't feel listened to, yeah. things can escalate oh, over and God, over time. Yeah. And listening and works on the premise that you're going to have to first acknowledge because mm-hmm. they need to tell you something. Mm-hmm. So again, as a professional um, working in such an environment. Have you ever been challenged in terms of your own belief systems and having to adapt to accept, okay, this is the person's belief system. Mm-hmm. This is where they want to live their life. Mm-hmm. I need to park my own views mm-hmm. and it's in order for me to engage with this young person. Um, yes, I, th- I think we, uh, that's the short answer. Yeah, <laughs> I, th- yep. I think we always come across parents uh, and children that do things slightly different from what how I would do it. Um, I think my job is absolutely not to judge. It's it's the furthest away from from my job description. I'm not here to judge anyone. I think I'm here to facilitate, uh, as a nurse, I'm here to facilitate that family uh, coming to a good place in whatever way. Um, And and, um, I think what my my beliefs doesn't, I think as long as I'm aware that my beliefs are different and that my choices might be different, as long as I'm aware and I reflect on that and I don't let that get in, 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 in sort of in the way of my nursing this person, uh, then I'm fine. You know, I don't need to agree with everything they're saying. I don't, they don't need to agree with everything I say, I suppose. But I think I, as a professional, need to reflect on my own thoughts and feelings. Uh, and obviously that's why we have supervision, you know, after tricky cases, because it might be something like we know we can't change everything about this situation and we feel a bit... Well, you know, if I had a magic wand, I would change this, this, and this. Mm. But you, you, you know, you're li- you have to realize your limitations, and you have to go with what you've got. I've got so many young people coming in. Uh, I know that their home situation is really chaotic. Um, and in an ideal world, I would like to bring them home and you know tuck them in, you know, yeah, and kind literally. of raise them myself. Literally, just hug them. Mm. But actually, that's rescuing people is not useful. You know, it's not what they need. They need um, empowerment and they need um, tools to deal with their own situation in their own world. Exactly. Exactly. And and this, I think this is what we need to remember when we're nurses. This is their world. This is their um, life. And we just need to facilitate them making the best choices that they can. I totally, totally agree. Because we only are involved in a minutiae time frame in their whole life mm, you know 99 yeah. of the time they yeah. buy themselves without yeah. needing mental health services yeah, 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 even yeah. if they have inpatient admissions yeah. the majority of the time they buy themselves so um gert um Bettinger speaks very um boldly and reinforces the state that um we are professionals based upon academia yes and the patient <laughs> the young patient the young the um, young person's an expert based upon the lived experience they are the experts yeah. of, of, exactly. of, of their experience definitely sure and also they're but they're also scared sometimes mm. for me um uh, maybe going off script mm-hmm. one of my biggest um um factors that drew me to camps is not only was it working systemically working with the family as well mm-hmm. was also understanding that things are raw mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. for many times mm-hmm. it's the first time a young person mm-hmm. might have heard voices yeah you know yeah. They, they don't understand what that is they've got no coping strategies yeah embedded yet so it's trying to get them on the right um journey straight yeah. away yeah. um yeah. as i said earlier jenny jenny is um she's one of those game changers she's she's a dynamic our mental health professional. Okay. So she got halfway through her journey. So I'm very keen. <laughs> I'm very keen that we get back on track. Yeah. And okay. for anybody that needs to go into nursing, please just listen to the rest of this podcast and you'd be convinced. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. So what the rest of my journey yeah, in the- mental health? Well, like I said, I went into social care for a bit, uh, youth support services, worked with youth, uh, youth um, clubs and youth youth organizations yeah. kind of worked with the police there was a lot of um young people um in the um in the social care system it was child in need it was child child protection and it, yes. was, it was a lot of trauma going on so my job was mostly to support the the youth support workers in dealing with these traumatic cases so i, I really quite love doing that um but i got an opportunity to um go into a very a much higher position, I suppose, in a private company that was working with, um, it is a a healthcare company that was working with uh, the systems within. 
So they were a consultancy company that okay. um, would uh, kind of win contracts in NHS uh, trusts to help with the systems, okay. help with the blockages within um, delivering um, good care. Sure, okay, sure. So we're talking about long wait lists. We're talking about... Uh, you know, not being able to access the care that you would need in that area. So this consultancy company was brought in to, um, to for a short period of time in my local mental health trust to uh, to look at the systems and look how we could improve them. Sure. That was so interesting for me, so interesting. Um, and I kind of grabbed that with both hands, wherever the saying is, <laughs> and um, kind of threw myself into it. And it was, it was really hard. It was a challenge. Uh, it was, we kind of worked mostly with, I was going out uh, in teams, trying to find out where the difficulties we did, um, case studies, case reviews to try and kind of find out what was stopping young people from accessing the right care at the right time. Um, and we were trying to adopt a bit of an American model, um, it didn't really work that well, uh, I have to say, but it was it, it really, really um, interesting. We collected a lot of data. It was quite data driven. I, I got a newfound love for data yep. um, and I, I use it quite a lot in the liaison service now to kind of prove to the commissioners that we're doing a good job. So, it, you know, so so I really kind of loved that year that I did with, uh, with, with that uh, company. And I liked being on the kind of the other side. You know, I wasn't clinical. I was I was working within the systems. Uh, it it was quite corporate. End of the day, I didn't like it. <laughs> but you were stretched. Um, you you yeah. were stretched as 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 a qualified nurse. Yeah. You, the role is varied. Yes. And a, a lot of people might think, oh, if I do nursing, I might just be stuck on a ward and that is it. Yeah. But you're testifying that your journey oh, has it, brought it, you so many different I, I could have continued within the corporate world and working more on the higher level systems and improving the pathways. We were kind of writing policies, improving pathways to the local mental health trust. Yes. But in, and, I, and I really it found it really interesting. But end of the day... I missed clinical work and I, I loved to be doing that for a year, but I, I really miss clinical work. I missed um, the contact with uh, families. I missed that kind of therapeutic relationship, even if it's short in, 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 in liaison. I, I missed it, basically. Sure. I, so, I totally agree. Uh, you know, so yeah. even though I had a taste of, you know, that bit of money, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a bit of a higher position, yeah. you know, um, and I learned a lot. I met some amazing people. Um, one guy that I still um, am really, really good friends with, who is now, uh, he's a data nerd. He, he, you know, he's, he's really good with his data. And we, we still keep in contact and he helped me with certain things so that, that, that I need to, um, if I need to find some, you know, data out of something and he he asked me about nurses stuff because he now works in healthcare so i met some amazing people i've learned some amazing stuff uh but i missed clinical work sure and you also, you also talked about data the importance of data yes um this is something <laughs> that um i'm not sure you're training um how you're trained as a nurse in terms of mm. the um, various courses you had to mm. do our uh, various subjects modules mm. you had to mm. train us to be a nurse but mm. i i remember when i was training there was very few um lectures on data oh, the, God, the gathering of was the it? evidence in through data mm-hmm. um now you've gone to the other, other side mm-hmm. now um how how are you actually using the data um approach to facilitate the care i know you talk about evidence in for resources to commissioners mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you understand that so sometimes data could be deemed as a tick box exercise but and you- that's how I felt uh, early on in my career I didn't get it I mm. just wanted to talk to young people I didn't want to do the data mm. um, but I I, I I think it really informs the bigger picture and it can really be uh, useful in improving services and I suppose where what we're doing now in sort of the liaison work we're we're, we're collecting our data ourselves because uh, it's a small service we're collecting our own data we we it is anonymous, obviously, and we're, we're putting where they're from, why they're there, you know, what the outcome was, uh, you know, what intervention it was. So, I, I mean, I have this idea. I started off thinking about this idea with, obviously, my data friend in my pri- in the private company. That wouldn't it be amazing if we could map needs over the country <laughs> uh, or over our local area? Yes. So, you know, you might have a pocket of young people that have a specific need. 
up in the west of Surrey and then you have a, you know, um, and we probably know what's going on in, in our area. We know, but we don't have any proof. Yes. So if it's about um, trying to commission new services, preventative services, if it's about getting more school nurses, if it's about getting, you know, mental health nurses into GPs and, and things like that, we need some evidence of, yes. of what are the needs in that local area. Okay. Sure. So in that respect, I think if we could, um, you know, create a bit of a bit of a what's the word, bit of a landscape of what the needs are in whatever area we're working in, I think that's a start to 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 think about what's needed. Sure, I suppose. sure. It's, it's almost the basis of the, like the Uber model, mm-hmm. you know, where you you map a need to resource. You need to transport to mm-hmm. lift. Mm-hmm. The resources are there, the cars, and you connect. Mm. connect a need to resource so as we find with um, young people young people are dynamic as you yes. quite right, right? Yeah. I like that yeah. word dynamic they move yeah. they're fresh yeah. so they're not based they're not, they don't stick to geographic locations like they don't care about um, um, what trusts you're aligned to yeah. the GPs all yeah, that kind of exactly. particularly when they go to university yeah. Yeah, you yeah. know so again ensuring that people get provisions of care yeah. no matter where they are mm-hmm. that's excellent that leads me on to discussing with you mm-hmm. what are your views on technology and health apps in gathering that data do you promote that with young people do you have any tools yourself to give them um i i i love apps okay i've been i've been this has been a bit of a conflict for me okay because i'm a bit old fashioned i like face to face i like the, the the interpersonal relationship that that you get from a, a great therapeutic relationship and that can be a great um, help in, in supporting that young person or that family. But we have to be realistic and a lot of young people um, are not there yet where they want to sit face to face with somebody. Yes. Okay. Um, they might just be starting to think about what's, what's going on with them and do I need help? Don't I need help? You know, and then they might have social anxiety. They might not even get to the clinic. There's a lot of young people that don't get to the clinic or even get to school, you know? So apps, I think play an amazing pivotal part in um, reaching certain young people. Okay. And also it, you know, there's loads of cool apps out there. Um, we, in our discharge package in A&E, we have, a whole um, bunch of apps that we recommend to young people. Uh, some of them are apps to help with, with self-harm, to reduce the self-harm. Uh, some of them are uh, apps to um, kind of ride the wave of anxiety and all different distractions to do while you're riding the wave. So you can time yourself, you know, you get a little emoji or an avatar or whatever you call it to make it all personal. Um in my um, old job for uh, the Mental Health Trust, we also were involved in promoting an online therapeutic service called Kuth.com, okay. um, where you you do your whole therapy like you would face to face, but on on messenger or on text. Okay, really success, successful successful yeah. to uh, a lot of young people that can't make it out. Okay, so in terms of technology, although I was a bit of an old fuddy duddy in the beginning, you know, oh no, we don't <laughs> want to do that. I am totally embracing the new uh new ideas new apps new um uh, yeah i yeah. think it's exciting yeah, because te- very exciting yeah, technology can be um an enabler mm-hmm. you know and certainly as it progresses with the apps and as long as the apps are are well well written mm-hmm. because there's it introduces some risk in terms of where the data goes etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm-hmm. but all, all things being equal and and nhs itself has um an app library so they yeah, they so, do, so, yes. so, so yeah. they vet yeah. a lot of these. So yeah. anyone that wants to get access to an app that might help them, go to the NHS website. I'm not sure the, the I'll put the link in the comments below anyway. Yeah, yeah. I think if you notes. just search apps, I think we have a printout in our office of all the apps. Yes. Or I've got it saved somewhere. So yeah, yeah you can find it just by Googling it. That's correct. So but again, that that is how technology is moving and mm-hmm. we we as a service have to evolve with with the, with the technology yeah. um sometimes parents can feel like they're left behind mm-hmm. i know when my kids are in the room the door's shut yeah i do feel like <laughs> an outsider i pay the mortgage yeah. and pay everything but when i enter that room it's like yeah. get out yeah you yeah, know, yeah. I've, I've, I've got that too yeah yeah, yeah. so um in terms of what they what they're doing as well mm-hmm. and how what sort of, what sort of um advice do you give to parents when they suspect or don't know what to do about a child that's exhibiting odd, strange type behaviours. Okay. Um, 
Well, I suppose if you are a parent, you hopefully know your child. Okay. So you will have a gut feeling if something's going on with your child, yeah. you will see these kind of slight behavioral changes. It could be a uh, different in uh, appearance. It could be a different in activity. It could be, um, uh, social withdrawal. It could be withdrawing from you. It could be finding new friends. It could be any change. I mean, young people go through changes every day anyway. Yes, I do. But I think if you keep the communication channels open with your child and you have a close relationship with your child, you will have that gut feeling. Um, I mean, I, I would like to think I would have that myself with my children. Um, but but sometimes we miss it. Sometimes we do miss it. We are not mind readers. We have busy lives and children are very crafty when it comes to hiding things that they think that they might need to hide. So I think my my advice would be um, if you it, my advice, I think it would be to just tell your child that you're there if they need you. Yes. Okay. Because yes. I think it's a very fine balance with barging into the room and taking the phone off them and smashing it because you're worried that they're talking to somebody online. I think it's very, very, it's a fine line. You know, you, you, you still need to have that uh, relationship with your child and you still need to have that trust. And I think if you just, um, make it sound very simplistic, don't I? But it's not simple. It's not simple. It's not simple at all. I think, I think it's a fine balance between, um, being the parent and safeguarding your child, but also, um, keeping that communication open and not bombard them and just kind of being available. I think being available, being validating, being um, uh, sensitive, being uh, open and curious about what your child is going through, asking about their day, being involved in their life. The more you know about your life and the more curious you are about what's going on, and that's hard with a teenager because they are secretive and they want to do yes, their own thing. They do, so but, you, but you can still kind of, yeah, yeah, I, I just can, think you need to keep that communication channels open. open. Yeah, and also be um, radically open-minded as well, because uh, yes. you're going to be yes. you're going to be exposed to a world that is something that's something that you've never experienced exactly. yourself. Because you, you as a parent, you you were that age two or three decades decades ago. Yes. Things yeah. were completely different, yeah. and so the children are going through things that. If you're not open-minded to mm-hmm. it or they feel or sense, I guess you're going to be judgmental mm-hmm. to them. Yeah. They'll close up and they they'll share up. those experiences with other people. Yes. Then you're going to be yeah. more shut out of the yeah. equation. So, And I think we, we do a lot of that in, in a crisis. I mean, sometimes you have a young person coming in and the crisis is literally they don't know how to tell something to their parents. Yes. You know, they don't know how to tell uh, that they are exploring their sexuality in, in a way that their parents might not, ex- uh, you know, expect in terms of, you know, liking girls or boys, mm. or um, they might kind of feel confused about their gender. Most, to be, to be fair, most young people don't feel compu- confused about their gender. They quite, they, you know, they know what they are. They know what they feel. Uh, the, the time where they come into crisis is when the parents are not supportive that then becomes a crisis. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So if, again, with the judgmental bit, um, if we do a lot of work with parents in and the child in crisis, and sometimes just with a simple kind of opening up the communication between them and facilitating that and kind of mediating sort of the conversation, we can avert a crisis pretty, pretty quickly because actually it's about fear. The child, they might be fearful for judgment or yes. they might think, oh, my dad is, doesn't like this yeah. and that, you know, I can't tell him that. But actually when the dad hears that, he might be mortified. He might be a joke that he made ages ago about, you know, something. Mm-hmm. Then the child then thinks that, well, my dad's not going to accept me because, you know, this, this is me now. So, um, so I think you need to be careful. Yeah. As, as parents and, and, and yeah, and not be judgy yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> as, as much as you can. Yeah, easier said than done. <laughs> oh but, God, yes. but most definitely, I think it starts with awareness and being able to reflect back whenby you've said things or mm. you've responded in the way that you, you want to readdress. Mm-hmm. I think you always have opportunities when you know your children are still with you to do something. So yeah. um, this has been um, a revelation speaking to you, Jenny, and I'm conscious of time. So I don't yeah. really want to keep pushing you, keep pushing you. But if I can, if I can um, get out a few more bits and pieces just before we, we close, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of um, parents out there 
who have listened to this um, um, podcast who also either have gone through mental health problems themselves or that you're not going through that. And their issues feel more reassured that they are mental health professionals, just such as ourselves, mm-hmm. that are deeply passionate. Yeah, uh, deeply so, passionate. Yeah. So they are in safe hands. So mm-hmm. sometimes it's a system that is mm-hmm. at fault, mm-hmm. meaning the system even in the home or even in the mental health services. Yeah. But the people like us are really trying to do. There is a lot of passionate people working out there with, with children and, and adults. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a shame that, that, like you said, sort of the this, this system um, sometimes is broken. So yes. we don't get to do the work that we want to do, yeah. you know. Yeah. So if you could do the work that you want to do mm-hmm. and you were the Minister of Health. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what would be your flagship um policy oh oh it would be it would be early intervention absolutely early intervention it would be a whole rejig of the school system <laughs> it would yeah. be a whole rejig of the the curriculum in yes. terms of including emotional well-being mindfulness uh, awareness resilience more than anything i think um i did an amazing training last week about um adverse childhood experiences and sort of the ACEs as they call it, you know, and, and how we can't always change what's happened to young people, but we can absolutely help them develop resilience. And, um, so this is, this is one thing that I would be so passionate about. I would like to go into every school. I would like to have be part of the curriculum. I like to follow that through, um, into sort of youth clubs and youth centers. And I would like it to become a kind of an everyday thing, really. Um, I also would, um, oh, so many things I want to do. Um, I would also like to improve the transition between, uh, uh, child and adult mental health services. Um, I think this 18 year old sort of stop cut off. I mean, I know in some areas across uh, the UK, especially up in Birmingham where, where I, um, I did some training at one point. Um, they have a 16 to 25 service. Okay. Yes, that's and, better, yeah. yeah. And it, 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 so, so yeah, those two things I would, I, was, I would look at preventative services and incorporate that into school and then a transition into adulthood. I think that's a very tricky time for a lot of young people. So vote for me for uh, I, I, a health I'm, minister. <laughs> I'm voting for Jenny Pink. <laughs> that, that was truly inspiring. And like I said, if you, if you want access to some of this information or want to get access to Jenny Pink, all the information has got to be in the show notes. Um, this this to me is the third and final one. However, based upon the feedback I'm getting already, mental health is a huge subject. Mm-hmm. Okay, we will do a lot more in the future. So, Jenny, thank you very much for lending <laughs> us your expertise and time. Thanks for having me. Thank and you. You guys have a blessed week. We out. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out micdropclub.com and get the show notes and useful links. Subscribe to the podcast. Don't just live life, make life boom.